0: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Monstrous Regiment Featuring a round table of dominion women Seeking to honor Jesus Christ in applying God's word Fearlessly and faithfully In all callings and seasons of life Both in and out of the home Reversing the curse And smashing pagan strongholds
1: definition of art? And what can that definition tell us about work in general? This week we'll be digging into Dorothy Sayers's views on art, theology and work and they are enlightening to say the least. I'm Susanna Roundtree, my co-host is Cheryl Nicholson and we are the Monstrous Regiment. So Dorothy Sayers used to tell the story of how a reader of her detective novels once told her, I am sure that Lord Peter will end up as a convinced Christian. Says was rather taken aback by that. From what I know of him, nothing is more unlikely. But as a Christian yourself, you must want him to be one. He would be horribly embarrassed by any such suggestion, she said. (laughs) And I love this story because it's such a clear picture of what I think is a major misunderstanding about art in Christian circles, which is that in order to be Christian art, the art needs to have some kind of distinctive Christian presence, whether it's the words to a song or a landscape with like a big cross in the middle of it or a book or a movie that presents some kind of conversion experience or at least some outspokenly Christian characters. The assumption is that if you're trying to create Christian art, then it has to have some kind of faith experience. And I remember several times trying to convince some friends that uh, Jane Austen novels, for instance, are Christian art. And a lot of Christians don't understand that because Jane Austen doesn't use her novels to preach at you at all, and uh, obviously neither neither do Dorothy's novels. So are they Christian novel? Uh, are they Christian art? And and I think the answer is quite obviously yes. But that isn't clear to everyone, and I think the root cause is because we don't see Christianity as a faith for all of life. Mm-hmm. See if if Christian, if God's truth undergirds the whole universe then we don't need to go around stamping crosses or bible verses on our things in order to make them Christian. The psalmist says that the cattle on a thousand hills belong to God and the cows which means that the cows outside my window right now are Christian cows not because someone went and painted little crosses on them but because they are being good cows in, in God's world. So like Dorothy says uh, I'm an author and my plat- and my art form is storytelling And people have been telling me for years that I need to read more Dorothy Says, and I've finally taken their advice, and I found that she developed very similar convictions to me on this topic. Um, I'm going to read a great quote from her introduction to The Man Born to be King, which is a cycle of radio plays that she wrote for the BBC during World War II. Um, It's a dramatisation of the life of Jesus. So she was talking about the challenges of having to take a matter of theology, which is the life of Jesus, and turn it into a work of art. And she, she actually says this wasn't as complicated as you might expect. She says, the purely, from the purely dramatic point of view, the theology is enormously advantageous because it locks the whole structure into a massive intellectual coherence. It is scarcely possible to build up anything lopsided, trivial, or unsound on that steely and gigantic framework always provided, of course, that two conditions are observed. It must be a complete theology. Never was there a truer word that except a man believe rightly, he cannot, at any rate his artistic structure cannot possibly, be saved. A loose and sentimental theology begets loose and sentimental art forms. An illogical theology lands one in illogical situations. An ill-balanced theology issues in false emphasis and absurdity. Conversely, there is no more searching test of a theology than to submit it to dramatic handling. Nothing so glaringly exposes inconsistencies in a character, a story, or a philosophy as to put it upon the stage and allow it to speak for itself. Any theology that will stand the rigorous pulling and hauling of the dramatist is pretty tough in its texture. Having subjected Catholic theology to this treatment, I am bound to bear witness that it is very tough indeed, as I once made a character say in another context, in art is right in practice and I can only affirm that at no point have I yet found artistic truth and theological truth at variance. I was, I was so excited when I read this because it's exactly what I found myself. Um, as you know, I've written both fiction and non-fiction articles and um, And while there are some articles that I've written that I'm not so proud of, there's fiction that I wrote at the same time, out of the same viewpoint, which I am much happier about because I know that um, the process of putting my beliefs into fiction helped me to test and develop those beliefs until they were much more uh, gracious and much closer to what I actually wanted to be saying. Mm -hmm. Every writer has to face the challenge of saying what he means and not accidentally saying something stupid and, and the challenge is to say the, say what you want to say in a way that is both powerful and persuasive and also nuanced, so every time like <laughs> this is just something that I've found, I just feel like every time I write nonfiction, I put my foot in my mouth, and um but it's when I turn my beliefs into story, then I can communicate in a way that is edifying instead of damaging so I get a lot of people asking me why I write fiction. And you know, with the assumption that there are hundreds of more important things that I could be doing. But the reason is simple. I'm convinced that I can't be doing anything more important. Writing fiction really helps me to say the things that I have to say in the most effective possible way. So that's why I write fiction, but the how is also important. And here's here's another amazing quote from Sayers. She says, A work of art that is not good and true in art is not good or true in any other respect and is useless for any purpose whatsoever, even for edification, because it is a lie and the devil is the father of all such. What this actually means is that theology, the dogma, must be taken by the writer as part of the material with which he works and not as an exterior end towards which his work is directed. And that's, again, that's something that I've definitely found as a writer. A lot of Christian writers um, tend to use their work to um, discuss or promote a certain theological perspective. But I've always tried to use my fiction as a way of, I guess, playing. I, I often use the expression playing war games. Like, if this theology is true, then how do we live? Yeah. And what are the challenges
2: that we're going to face um i to be quite honest a lot of the christian art that's produced these days whether it's movies or those atrocious um christian romances that are like amish amish romances like i don't get it like they're horrible horrible i've
1: never tried to read one
2: well i haven't either i mean just the 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 photos on the or the pictures on the front put me off <laughs> I don't see anything romantic about that particular form of culture, especially with the legalism.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But um, I don't know how the rest of the world views it. But the way I come to a lot of the Christian art that's been turned out, like movies and like war room, or some fireproof or some of the more popular ones, is that you don't go into it thinking that this is a great story that you're about to see. You go in feeling like. Um, they're going to try and slip some ideology in there and <laughs> it's not, it's not a story for the sake of the story. It's, it's, it's an ideologically driven piece of uh, propaganda. Yeah. And so yeah. one
1: of, Sorry. Go it's
2: on. not, it's not authentic then. Yeah,
1: exactly. Uh, one of the things that I've come to be convinced of through, you know, years of, both reading fiction and writing fiction. Uh, one of the things I'm convinced of is that when a story is preachy, it's not necessarily preachy because it's trying to make a point. I think I think every um, I think I think meaning is a necessary part of every good artwork. The question is whether the meaning is being imposed on a story that um, that it doesn't mesh with. Mm-hmm. Or whether the meaning is growing naturally out of the story, whether it's um, whether it's there in the basic things like the situation and the whole the way the plot develops. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much, so much Christian art is preachy because it doesn't think about the theological aspects of things like plot and character. Um, what do I mean, for example? Um, uh, a truism in writing is that your characters must be active they shouldn 't be passive, they should take action and I think you know that 's a biblical concept uh, we 're supposed to be at, have active virtue and we 're not supposed to just sit around waiting for the Lord to sort everything out for us and and so when you um, another another aspect in plot, like um, for example, the, the idea that a plot should have a satisfying resolution at the end of the story. Um, that's a Christian concept as well, because um, the Christian view of history is that it's coming to a resolution at the end of history, where everything will be tied up. That is, that was um, that was revolutionary in to the ancient world. The ancient world had a very cyclical view of history, where everything goes around in a age, in ages that it's like an ever-ending wheel. There's actually the symbol of Hinduism is a wheel, and right. that's what it represents: the cyclical nature of history. And so. And so it was Christianity who said, no, history has a beginning, it develops, and then it resolves at the end, and there's an end to the story. And so, <laughs> and so that's well, another way that theology um, influences storytelling.
2: You know, what's really interesting is like the genre itself of mysteries, at least the type of mysteries that um, Dorothy wrote and Agatha Christie and that, that group of people during the golden era of uh, mystery. One of the reasons why it was so popular was because there was a very strong sense of right and wrong and Mm -hmm. sins that had been committed but also justice being brought against those who had committed the crime. And um, it was that, the satisfaction of seeing justice brought against evil that made those stories so popular and so powerful.
1: Exactly. I think there's also a great deal of uh, appeal in the idea that the world is intelligible—that you can look at things and say, "We can actually tell what happened." You know, the the world around us is able to be understood, and that's some, again, that's something that you can only have in a Christian um, in, in a Christian mindset, where the um, where the world makes sense to you and it can be understood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, for all these reasons, I've always found that good storytelling will glorify God. And here's where I'm going to get a little controversial, even if it's made by pagans. I think you constantly see this in Hollywood, for example. Um, The best films that Hollywood puts out, these days they usually don't win Oscars. But because they're profound and they're beautifully crafted, they give glory to God. And I think um, a great example from this year is the movie A Quiet Place. I don't know if you saw that, Cheryl.
2: No, I haven't.
1: I, I would highly recommend it. It's a beautiful story of um, guilt and sacrifice, and it's it's a great example of what I think is, you know, in pursuing excellent storytelling, they've wound up just incorporating a Christian worldview into their um, into their movie, and it's beautiful. Dorothy Sayers wrote, "When a story is great enough." Any honest craftsman may succeed in producing something not altogether unworthy because the greatness is in the story does not need to borrow anything from the craftsman. It is enough that he should faithfully serve the work. And so here's the thing about, here's the thing about storytelling. It was God who invented it. Mm-hmm. It was God who made all things. And the story of the fall and the redemption of the world is the greatest story ever told. J.R. Tolkien pointed out that the gospel is the true myth behind all other stories. You only have to scratch a good story and the gospel will appear behind it. Yeah. So That means that the more anti-Christian you try to make a story, the more you actually denature the story until you've turned it into something that isn't really a story. Whereas if you just focus on telling a good story and telling it well, then the story will lead you to the gospel and you can't help it.
2: Well, you know, I want to go back to what you said about it being controversial that even pagans can do. Mm-hmm. People betray all the time that we are made in god's image Mm. and so we shouldn't expect that it's only christians who turn like we know christians can turn out terrible art and they can turn out really great pieces of work that glorify god but pagans as well are also made in the image of god and they demonstrate this and the interesting thing is that it's not just limited to artwork If you look around the room that you're sitting in, every single thing that we see here has to go through the creative process of being, first of all, thought in the same way that God had to think and then works it out and brings it into being. That whole creative process of bringing, taking something that began as a thought and then transforming it into the objects that we see around us that is us expressing our image-bearing exactly. capabilities. Exactly. And, and that's not just limited to Christians. We all no. do.
1: Yeah, well, uh, Romans Romans 1 was helpful to me in um, in figuring this out. Um, I think it's Romans 1 that's where, where Paul is talking about how um, the, ungo- the ungodly try to, they know the truth, but they're trying to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Yes. But see, in order to try and to suppress the truth, you need to, you, you, you know, you can't do that unless you've actually got the truth. That's and, right. so, and so what we see in art made by non-Christians, as well as in art made by Christians, yeah. is this tension between knowing the truth and trying to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. <laughs> so you've constantly got this tension happening and that's, that's how you can account for the fact that so much of the world's art has can often be so profound and so biblical while trying to pay lip service to um, humanist or pagan ideals.
2: Yeah, I, you know what's really funny? <laughs> Something that I've observed and it was kind of built on what uh, C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity about there being, there really isn't uh, a completely different standard of morality that exists. There's only the law of God, which he's put it, because nobody ever tries to make an excuse for good behavior. (laughs) Right? I I was kind today because I got up on the right side of the bed. I was just having a good day. We only try to justify or make excuses for bad behavior. Why it was okay for this at this particular time for me to be self centered. Um, And so, again, you know, going back to Romans 1, yeah, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And I always know that when I'm making an excuse for doing something that I know is wrong, (laughs) that's me suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And then that, and when I realize I'm doing it, it's like, oh, yeah, 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 sure, I shouldn't be doing that.
1: Yeah, and I think I think that's what we see in in the in the world's art. So if if our stories are made in the image of God's story, and if we are made in God's image, then that means that thinking about thinking about God and um, applying our theology to all of our life is going to help us to be better artists. And that's that's what Dorothy Sayers believed. And um, so behind everything she says about art is theology and the way that we imitate god as the great maker and she talks about this in her book the mind of the maker which discusses the connection between theology and art and this is again it's something that i spend a lot of time thinking about myself so says explains that we're made in the image of god and because we because he is a creator we are most like him when we make with our imagination and she points out that the, there's an infinite number of things that we can think of to create, which is um, probably the closest we'll ever get to um, creating ex nihilo. And I think I think Sainz is on to something there. Mm. Like this is Reconstructionist Radio and as Reconstructionists we often emphasize the Dominion Cultural Mandate, which is our mission in the earth, to cultivate and fill and subdue it. We take the raw materials in God's creation and we perfect them. And of course Making doesn't have to be limited to art, it can involve designing machines or writing programming code for instance. But Says believed that the act of creating was inherently trinitarian, so she believed we can get a picture of the trinity from three things that happen when a work of art is produced. Um, first there's the artist's original idea which guides the artist as she tries to produce the finished work, um, and Says believes that that's analogous to God the Father. Um, then there's what she calls the energy, which is the artist's mental and physical activity as she refines and creates the idea. And, um, and this is analogous to God the Son, since it's only through the artist's incarnational work in producing the artwork that anyone can actually know the idea, just as no one can know God the Father through, except through God the Son. And then finally, there's what she calls the power which is the effect which the artwork has on its creator and its audience, not just while they're experiencing the artwork, but also afterwards while they're thinking it over. Mm. And, um, and that, of course, would be analogous to the Holy Spirit. And so I'm not going to get into all her conclusions from this idea, but one of the things that struck me was that this provides a really helpful Christian theory of aesthetics. One of the things that artists argue about constantly is the definition of art. Is something art just because the artist says it is? Or does it have to appeal to the people who are looking at it? And the same thing goes for beauty, of course. Is beauty in the eye of the beholder? Or is it on the say-so of the artist? Well, if Says is correct, the answer is both. Art is something that is made by a maker, but which also has the power to affect the people which it comes into contact with. So while, while Cheryl and I were discussing the mind of the maker over the last few days, we've both been reading it, we found ourselves talking about what this theory might mean for the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, people have often challenged Christians to explain how an all-powerful and all-good God could allow evil to come into the world and of course Calvinists and Arminians often argue over whether people have free will or whether they're predestined by God to act in certain ways. You've probably heard the um, debates. The thing is that a lot of these questions get answered when you start looking at the universe as being a piece of art. Cheryl was asking me what would happen to storytelling if we lived in a perfect world and well obviously there 's no story if you don't have a problem to solve or an issue to overcome you can't you can 't really write a story about sinless people who are only helping one another out and living in perfect harmony but the interesting thing is when you look at the um, when you look at redemptive history, even before the fall of man, we had conflict Indy um, Wilson points out Adam and Eve were both still perfect and sinless, when a dragon appeared in their garden and asked, did God really say that you'd die if you ate the fruit? Obviously that was a result of Satan's sin, which means that sin had to enter the creation somehow before even unfallen men or angels could experience conflict. God made a fallible world and the world did fall. It created a story with sin and conflict, a stage on which the drama of redemption could unfold. As the prophet Amos said, shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it. Mm. So God's plan includes our sin and our immaturity and our lack of sanctification. I think St. Augustine was correct. He pointed out that God wants to reveal himself in his full nature. And that means revealing not just himself as a loving God toward the faithful, but also as a just and holy God toward the unfaithful. Mm. But this doesn't take away responsibility for our sin. So, as as Dorothy Sayers points out in uh, chapter five of *The Mind of the Maker*, what we actually have here is free will and predestination at the same time in perfect reconciliation. <clears throat> and I was asking Cheryl, you know, when when Dorothy Sayers writes a murder mystery, who who kills the murder victim? Is it Dorothy Sayers or is it a villain? Well, it's both. Yep. Sayers th- thought up the villain. Is she predestinated his crime. But within the story world itself, the villain has free will. And his his crime is 100% his responsibility, even if Sears was the one who plotted it out beforehand. So free will and predestination are both true. Both of them work because they're working on such totally different
2: planes. I I actually thought that was a brilliant, like I I just spent hours (laughs) later thinking about all the ramifications, but it's exactly like that. God knew the end from the beginning before He started writing the story. All of our names were written in His book of life before the foundation of the world was written.
1: I could say the same thing about my own humble creations.
2: Oh yeah, but but that's exactly that's exactly the whole point. That demonstrates our image bearing. Like that's really profound. Yeah,
1: and I'm you know I'm a Calvinist myself. I've understood that side of the equation for a while, but um, one of the things that I found. Uh, quite new and intriguing in the mind of the maker, and says I don't think he's coming from a Calvinist point of view, which is, um, which is great because she's focusing more on something that I haven't thought about a lot, which is the author's responsibility not to violate the story world by breaking its laws or forcing the characters to act in uncharacteristic ways. See, the lady who wanted Lord Peter Whimsey to become a convinced Christian, she offended Sayers because Sayers knew that that would be highly uncharacteristic. She loved her creation too much to beat it out of shape in order to make a theological point, which is something we need a lot more of in Christian art. So she believes that a good artist is going to love the creation and is going to want it to be truly itself. And she points out that whenever writers manipulate their stories in order to make a point, point, going back to what we were talking about before, mm-hmm. we, we always recognise that the result is bad art. And she points out that the best creations are the ones that stand on their own two feet apart from their makers. And she uses children as an example of this. Mm -hmm. Parents parents sub-create and educate their children, but the whole point is to produce an independent being. Sayers writes, in all these relations, the creator is conscious of the same paradoxical need, namely the complete independence of the creature, combined with its willing cooperation in his purpose, in conformity with the law of its nature. In this insistent need, he sees the image of the perfect relation of creator and creature and the perfect reconciliation of divine predestination with free created will. Mm. I'm going to have to spend a, a bit of time thinking about that. It's it's blowing my Calvinist brain a little bit. I love it. <laughs> but it's something that I've, it's definitely something that I've experienced as an author. Um yeah. I don't go as far as some of my friends do who will talk about how their characters take decisions that they didn't plan. And, you know, I, I, do, I do like to have my characters doing what I've planned because I know that um, I've created an excellent story. But also when I'm, when I'm creating the story, if I ever come across, and, and it frequently happens that I often come across um, a place where I've planned for something to happen. And then in the moment that I'm writing, I realize, wait, well, hang on. Logically speaking, this character is not actually going to want to do this. Right. That's unrealistic depending on the character. And so I always, always um, try and find a way to um, bring about my purposes in the plot in such a way that the characters can remain themselves and can remain consistent, because otherwise it would be bad art.
2: Yeah. And there's a sense... I think there. I've never written stories, so I'm just <laughs> guessing here. But I, there's a sense in which what you're doing with your story mimics in that you know you're omniscient about your story. Mm-hmm. There's a certain level of omniscience about what's going on and omnipresence in that story as you're writing it. Because you know, yeah. well, what the action's taking place here. You also know what's going on over here to... Two chapters over. At least I should.
1: Yeah. (laughs) No, I I do. It's an important part, knowing the bits of the story that actually aren't being shown Mm -hmm. on the page is my my writing always suffers when I forget to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Says makes the point on a number of occasions that makers ought to see themselves as servants to their work. And that's another of the big takeaways from this book for me. Everyone is a maker and everyone should have an attitude of service, not just to other people, but also to the work that they're doing. And I thought this was so profound. We know that Jesus came into this earth as a servant, but we don't usually extend that reasoning to God as father and creator. Mm. And yet as, as the creator, God does serve his creation. And, you know, when we look around our world and we, God does, Interact with us in a way that prompts us to be independent and responsible as creations. Um, and so that's one of the things that Says talks about in The Mind of the Maker. In the postscript to the book, she goes into these ideas in more detail, um, specifically talking about work. Says believed that work is an end in itself. She called it, um, and I quote, she called it a sacrament and manifestation of man's creative energy god didn't present us with a completed creation he gave us a creation which still needed to be refined and perfected all those gemstones that were lying around on the ground in the garden of eden needed to be cut and polished Um, houses and buildings needed to be built many theologians have noted that the world's history begins in a garden and ends in a garden city so even before the fall we were given the dominion mandate which requires us to work on this and Sayers insisted that we needed to stop looking at uh the world as a as a you know a series of problems to be solved as if our only work is to fix the damage of the fall no we need to go beyond that we need to be creative and we need to create just because that's what it means to be made in god's image mm. so according to dorothy says man must have work and it must be meaningful work because we are made in the image of a creator and no no matter whether we're working in the fine arts or in things like engineering or child-rearing we're makers and creators and so she spent a lot of time thinking and writing about the importance of work which is one of the things that cheryl and i have been most excited about as we've been um, exploring stairs in a bit more depth and so i think cheryl has some things prepared to bring us on on her views on work
2: well, Dorothy wrote a number of essays on the topic of work. In fact, the consideration of work as a way of finding meaning and purpose in life to the end of glorifying God was a passion of hers that showed up even in her fictional work.
1: It does. Um, I, re- I was reading Busman's Honeymoon, and I just loved the line where um, Lord Peter says to his new wife, he says, it's my work and me that you have married.
2: Yes. <laughs> she was not an ivory tower idealist about work. Uh, she took a very realistic view of it while at the same time pointing out the ends to which work should be driven. In her book, Gaudy Night, um, Harriet Vane, wh- who is challenged about being an Oxford educated intellectual who is doing work considered to be beneath her by writing popular crime fiction, responds to one of the other characters by saying, writers can't pick and choose until they've made money. I know what you're thinking, that anybody with a proper sensitive feeling would rather scrub floors for a a living than debase their art, in parentheses. But I should scrub floors very badly, and I write detective stories rather well. I don't see why proper feelings should prevent me from doing my proper job. Exactly. In other words, sometimes taking on a lesser job in order to be able to do the greater job in the future does not denigrate the work that you're called to. On the other hand, working merely for economic necessity should not be an end in itself so that you can then go out and have a ball. Um, Too many people these days uh, view work as something that you just do in order to get through to the weekend or after work, which is when life really takes takes place. Um, But weekends and recreation, or recreation as I like to call it sometimes, are to fit us for the task of our lives, which is our life's work. Okay. Yeah, one of the great crying needs in our day is the need to find purpose and meaning in life Dorothy emphasizes that being made in the image of God means being made for meaningful work she uses the illustration of an artist who makes commercialized art in order to not only meet his or her financial needs but also which goes over and above funding those needs so that they can continue doing usually the exact t- same type of work but done not for money. But for yeah. the love of the work itself. Yeah. So in this way, the artist is relieved not from the work but from the money.
1: Yeah, and that's that's such a that's that's something that's neither like it's it's not it's not capitalism. Even though it's about capitalizing on your work as you can, it's not about um it's not make, about making money your God. It's about I guess Using money as a tool. Using money as a tool to build the kingdom and to build the kingdom through your work.
2: Yes. Mm -hmm. When work is viewed as the means of fulfillment, it can transform even mundane drudgery with an end beyond itself. And that, of course, presupposes that you're making something that's worthwhile. Now, you know, nobody likes drudgery, but, you know, I was talking to my kids about this. There Mm -hmm. are two things that drudgery does for us first of all, it, it imposes its own kind of discipline where you have to just carry on and get the work done. But the second thing it can do is it can fuel ambition to get on to something better.
1: <laughs> exactly. And um, I, I, really, I really love that point you make about um, it's, it's, it's not necessarily whether the work is noble work. The work can be a very humble work. Mm-hmm. as long as you've got a big vision for what it can accomplish and i think um i think mothers particularly you know constantly running after little people and wiping up messes and changing nappies and then getting up the next day and doing it all over again yeah but if you have a vision for what uh, you're doing if you really feel called to it and if you can see that you're you're not just you know wiping up messes you're you're nurturing immortal souls that will yes. live forever yeah that suddenly changes your perspective from this is drudgery to this is, this is a greater work than I could ever have dreamed of.
2: Yes. I used to do uh, janitorial work before I was able to switch over into what I'm doing now. And I can't say that janitorial work is my favorite thing, especially cleaning out latrines and stuff. Um, But I'll tell you what, if you don't do it, people really notice. And when you do it well, they really appreciate it. And mm. so one of the things that I used to do with that was, um, even though I didn't enjoy the actual work itself, I used to think of it in terms of, ser- like I, I I, did janitorial work in the church. I, I looked at it as my way of serving the body. This is okay. a job that needed to be done and and the purpose of doing it was to provide comfort and cleanliness and uh, necessary things for other parts of the body so that they could function well. Exactly. So, so even, even unpleasant work can be invested with a nobility and a purpose beyond the actual work itself, if you have the right attitude. Yeah. Um, Sayers herself introduces a curious tension that exists with regards to work. For a number of years, she was employed by Benson's, an advertising agency. While there, she was responsible in a large way for two very successful ad ad campaigns. One of them was for Guinness, and the other one was My goodness, my Guinness. Yeah. (laughs) Something about a toucan. (laughs) And the other was for Coleman's Mustard. This work allowed her to provide for herself while she was building her her career as a writer. Yet she understood very well the dangers of a consumer-based society. And uh, she really decried uh, the consumer mentality, especially, she'd probably be horrified if she lived nowadays, to see just how, how much is, it has infected our society, where we can churn out all kinds of really trivial junk that's really cheaply made and not...
1: Yeah, and her... her the critique of consumerism was specifically about how it um how it prompts people to do shoddy work yes and um and how it how it how it's built on a view of work that is um that sees work as something to be escaped
2: yeah and and she also went on to point out that a consumer mentality fosters envy and avarice So um, you don't have to look too far to see that taking place in our society. The habit of thinking about work as something one does to make money is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be to think about it instead in terms of the work to be done. To do so would mean taking the attitude of mind we reserve for unpaid work our hobbies, our leisure interests, the things that we like to do for pleasure, and then making that the standard of all our judgments about things and people. We would ask of enterprise, not will it pay, but is it good? Of a man, not what does he make, but what is his work worth? Of goods, we can we induce people to buy them? But instead, are they useful and well-made? And of employment, not how much is... A week is this worth, but will it exercise my faculties to the utmost? Mm. She further comments that the reason why churches have so much difficulty in leading or speaking to the economic sphere is that they themselves don't have a coherent and ethical judicial view of either economics and that their view of work is closer to that of the pagan understanding of work. Yep. And that's really... Go ahead. Sorry, which
1: is that it's something that you do... Um, in order to be able to send money to the people who will do the real work.
2: Exactly. The Christian work. Exactly. Um, I have something to say about that a little bit further down here. (laughs) She said, work is not something we hasten to get through so that we may enjoy our leisure. Leisure is the change rhythm that refreshes us for the delightful purpose of getting on with our work. We should be invested not in mere work, but in work that is worth doing and worth doing well. Businesses that understand this concept have schemes in place that allow their workers to buy into the vision of the work and the product that's being produced. And these businesses are the ones that people are fighting to be a part of nowadays.
1: It's true. My brother works for a, um, a startup and I think, I think they, um, they gave him um, some shares in the business when he signed on. Yeah,
2: it's
1: it's people yeah. people want to know that there's a future in what they're doing.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, we were talking before we started recording this a little bit about work, and uh, I was I was telling Susanna here that uh, I have a a client in my practice who mm. works in heavy equipment in, industry. He works out in forestry. And in the past year, he's not very old, he's just a couple years older than I am, but he has seen upwards of 15 or more of his compatriots drop dead on the job. And one of the reasons that that's happening is because of the abominably long hours they are required to work, uh, the lack of um, proper food and lodging for these people, and the industries that are promoting this type of work ethic are having a really hard time getting those jobs filled because young people won't do it and I can't say I I, you know the idea of working and giving up your life for the man Hmm. just is not the older generation was willing to do it and put up with it the younger generation will not and I don't think that's a bad thing
1: no I don't think it's a bad thing either I think I think the Lord, um, you know, if you if you look at the Old Testament, um, it it's, it seems to be encouraging people to be um, self motivated, mm-hmm. entrepreneurial, and able to take care of themselves and their families.
2: Well, you know, Proverbs says that a good man will look well after the way of his animals. Right, will mm-hmm. take care of his livestock. So if that's true of taking care of livestock, a good man would also take care of his employees. And those who who don't, don't deserve to continue in business, if you ask me. Exactly. Now, the church has also lost the vision of secular work as something that is sacred. Time is not divided be- between when a man works and when he serves God, but rather we should take the view that we are serving God in our work and that the work itself must be accepted and respected as a medium of divine creation for that person. It is a false division of sacred versus secular work that has allowed the secular world to turn to destructive ends and for people to become irreligious in the greater part of their time. A Christian code writer expresses his Christianity best through writing excellent code to a high standard. Likewise, the accountant and the bookkeeper or the store manager, their Christianity should be expressed through their work as unto God and not be something that they do while the real Christian work is being done by pastors and missionaries.
1: It's so soul-destroying. I mean, I'm... it distresses people to know that their work to, to not feel satisfied by their work. We were we were made to delight in our work. And yeah. I think it says that in Ecclesiastes.
2: Well, I, I think it's notable that in the Dominion Covenant that God made with Adam and Eve, he said, Be fruitful and multiply, and then go out and take dominion over the earth. And he didn't say, Go build churches <laughs> and and set up nursery programs and run alpha programs and all the other things that we consider church work
1: yeah which is not to say that those things might not be good and necessary but the whole of life is good and necessary yeah
2: all of life belongs to god all of it every single discipline belongs to god and therefore every single discipline is to be made um we're to take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ and we're to think God's thoughts after him in those disciplines. And so dividing life into sacred and secular um, works against that. Um, The degradation of work and false divisions imposed in it are responsible for the ridiculously bad quality of Christian music, art, film, and other expressions of culture that the Christian community has become accustomed to producing and accepting. Every worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade and not outside of it. Christian work is not merely ecclesiastical, but every lawful form of work in which mankind can engage. There are basically two categories of people when it comes to work. Those who look at work as a hateful necessity and those who love their work for the work's sake. The first group uses money as a means of escaping work. They don't fully come alive until the work hours are done. To this group belongs not only the less fortunate, but also the idle rich, the woman who marries for financial security, the person who gambles for money so that he doesn't need to work for it and those who choose welfare and live off the public's largest when they could be working. It also used to be that the helping professions like doctors and nurses or teachers and pastors fell into the second category of those who were willing to work long hours because they loved their work. Now, however, we see industrial farms that wring as much production out of the land as they can instead of serving it, and doctors less concerned with conserving health as they are in exploiting it for profit. We have become accustomed to rate the worth of work by its monetary value rather than on the value of the work done and the product produced. Cool. Work for far too many has become something to do as little as possible of for as much money as possible rather than the means of establishing God's kingdom in every area of life.
1: Yeah, and I do see I do see, um, I do see that changing, especially in my generation. Um, I've, I've read a lot of think pieces about how millennials um, want to work at jobs that they feel fulfilled in, and um, mm-hmm. in some ways they're, they're happy to take a, um, a pay cut in order to do that, and yep. you know, why, why, should, why shouldn't we? <laughs> like I, we were saying I,
2: before. I think in that respect the millennials have got it way better, they're way better thinkers about that area of life than, than their elders are. Mm-hmm. The Industrial Revolution brought machinery and efficient means of production to life, but it also chained people to joyless and monotonous jobs. Now we see the monotony being turned over to robotic machines. Technological advances are allowing us to use machines in ways that are in harmony with human nature instead of injuring or oppressing it. We still have far to go when it comes to managing all the waste products that we now produce in our modern society, but as our friend Bojidar says, Pollution is just unspent energy we haven't yet found a way to use up. Yeah. So in conclusion, I'd like to issue a call to action for my brothers and sisters who are watching this. And I want to ask, what talents and abilities have you been given? And what passions has God put into your heart and life? Have you made a self-conscious effort to steward and develop them for the glory of God? and the furtherance of his kingdom and his will for your life. Let me close with this excellent observation of Dorothy's. God is not served by technical incompetence, and incompetence and untruth always result when the secular vocation is treated as a thing alien to religion. Amen. Thus endeth the program.
0: Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Regiment. We hope this podcast inspires and equips you to go and exercise dominion for Christ's kingdom. Terrible as an army with banners. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts,